what I'm going to do is, is pick up from the end of the exile. And there are a few things just to clarify and talk about uh, before we launch into the New Testament, which we will do quite soon. Because obviously, several hundred years uh, went by from the return from exile to the New Testament era. And God didn't stop working, nor did he stop speaking. And uh, we need to understand what's going on after the exile's return in 538, what was going on and what the issues were, in order to understand better the context into which Jesus will arrive. Basically, as we've uh, mentioned before, this period was an incredibly complicated period and one of great turbulence, and the turbulence didn't stop in 538. So just to sort of put you into the big picture, I've got some maps here. There we start with the Assyrian Empire, which was pretty impressive. Nineveh there, top right, was the capital, and so you will remember that from the book of Jonah. Uh, You see that Jerusalem is just a sort of tiny corner of this rather huge empire. And so basically... What you find in in the book Kings is that the Assyrians come to the sort of doorstep and they're only saved by the skin of their teeth because God intervenes. But basically the northern kingdom, you see it's just a tiny little corridor, very vulnerable, and they fell pretty quickly to their might. If it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians, and their empire wasn't quite as extensive, but it was nevertheless powerful, and they basically controlled the whole of what is called the Fertile Crescent. In other words... Uh, the part from modern Iraq all the way down to modern Israel and Jordan. And basically they followed the pattern of fertility of the rivers um, and uh, some more hospitable areas. But uh, the Babylonian Empire then basically succumbed to the Persian Empire, which was just vast. And anyone who's done any ancient Greek history will know about these guys. And uh, I think there's a film coming out quite soon about the 300 and the Battle of Thermopylae and against the Persians. Basically, these were mean dudes, don't mess. In fact, incidentally, it is worth going along to the British Museum because they've got all kinds of stuff from each of these eras, especially, you know, there's an amazing corridor of friezes from the Assyrian Empire, and they were designed to intimidate. Likewise, the Persians and the Babylonians. They were designed to say, we are bigger than you. You, you will quake in your boots, basically, when we come along. So it's pretty terrifying. But you see, again, um, Palestine, Israel, marks just a little corridor to get to the various parts of the empire. Well, if it wasn't them, it was the Greeks, Alexander the Great. His empire was a phenomenon, and he did it all by the time he died in his early 30s. And, of course, you know, it was totally untenable as an empire in and of itself. And so after he died, it was broken up and divided amongst his generals. And that explains why you have the Ptolemies speaking Greek in Egypt, and all the sort of Cleopatra and all that stuff later on. And basically his empire extended from Greece all the way over to northern India. Absolutely phenomenal. And basically, again, Palestine, Israel, it's just a corridor, just trampled on. And then, of course, more familiar, the Roman Empire. And again, just a corridor. And a sort of eastern backwater of this huge empire Certainly by the time you get to the later New Testament, uh, much of England, Britain has been conquered. So it covers basically all the way around the Mediterranean and um, pretty far north as well. 
But uh, if we just sort of think back to what happened at the end of the Israelite exile, the Judah exile, turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra comes after 1 and 2 Chronicles, which is after the book of Kings. Chronicles was written about 300 years after many of these events, after the exile. And so it covers a lot of the same ground, but actually very often has a very different interpretation. That's one of the reasons why they're different. It's not because they contradict each other, but because they have a different agenda. Um, But then you have Ezra and Nehemiah that describe specifically precisely what happens after the end of the exile. You see Chronicles ends with Cyrus, king of Persia, giving the decree to return. And for more background on that, you can read um, that chapter in Chronicles, but also Isaiah. And the people start drifting back to Israel. They start rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah are all about that. But they start to rebuild the temple, and things are not quite what they expected. Here are some of the people back in the city. Chapter 3, verse 11 of Ezra. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to Yahweh, He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. It's a famous line, isn't it? Straight from the Psalms. Here they are, after the exile, clinging on to the love, the faithfulness of Yahweh. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to Yahweh because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Now, it's a very odd little detail, isn't it? You see, the problem was the older guys could remember. They could remember what the old temple was like. Ezekiel had prophesied this great new temple that was going to be vast, dominating the center of the world, and God's glory was going to come back down into the temple, and it was just going to be awesome. And these guys, perhaps they had that in their minds. They're expecting something great, something big, something mind-blowing. Yet this new temple isn't bigger, let alone grander. It's smaller than the old one. It's not quite, it's a, it's a bit of a poxy one. Yeah, they're back. Yes, they're at home. But it's not quite everything it was cracked up to be. Perhaps the prophets were just leading them up the garden path. And so they wept. Because it looked as though their hopes were cruelly dashed yet again. Now, there were prophets in this period after the exile, Zechariah in the 6th century, Malachi in the 5th century. And it's interesting, they're back, yes. Quite a lot of people stayed at home in Babylon, though. They had quite nice lives for themselves, just as Jeremiah had encouraged them to do in the first place. But a lot of them stayed. And in fact, what you find is that never again were there as many people living in the land as outside the land. Most people now, or the majority of Jewish people, were in the so-called diaspora, spread out, the dispersion. And that's certainly the case by the time you get to Jesus' time. There are many more Jews living outside the land than in the land. And so it doesn't quite... They're back, but it's not as good as it used to be, and we thought it was going to be better. And we're not all here. In fact, you know, some cousins stayed over in in Babylon because life was pretty good there by that time. And you see, as this sort of um, progression of empires has shown, the people were never really free again, were they? Yeah, they were free to go home, but they weren't exactly free. 
And so by Jesus' time, basically they were under the thumb of another colonial power, this time from Rome. And the might of Rome was unlike anything else the Western world had ever seen at that point. And Rome was the largest city on earth. There wasn't a larger city until London in the 17th century. It's an astonishing thought, isn't it? There wasn't another city as big as ancient Rome was until London in the 17th century. Makes you quake in your boots if you take these guys on, doesn't it? So no wonder the people were looking for a king on David's throne. Yeah, they had puppet kings. Yes, they had people on the throne who pretty much did what Caesar or Alexander or whoever it was said. But where's the great king? Where's our Messiah, the God-anointed king who would redeem his people and bring them rest from all their enemies? That's what David had done, and yet we see nothing like that now, do we? How's it all going to work? Is God's kingdom over? It was nice while it lasted, but, you know, just deal with it now. Just live with the, you know, make the best of a bad job. Is that what we've got to do now? Do you see the point? Do you see the dilemma? So by the time you get to Jesus, there's a whole sort of mishmash of expectations, desires, hopes, dreams, fears, all milling around. All kinds of different people saying that they were the Messiah, they were the Savior, they were this, that, and the other. And you have people like Judas Maccabeus and all kinds of other things rebelling against this and against that and so on. It's all very complicated. It's a sort of... Um, you know, a huge sort of soup of all kinds of different things milling around. People are desperate for hope. Where are they going to find it? Well, to begin to understand this, I think we need to try and work out how prophecy works, what prophecy is. I talked about, you know, a Bible overview being a bit like going on a sort of walk in the mountains. And I think prophecy works like this. Imagine that uh, you're a mountaineer setting out on a walk and, you know, maybe it's the Himalayas or, I don't know, Ben Nevis or whatever it is in the distance and, and you're looking ahead and you see your objective, you see where you want to go and you look at the range in the distance and it's practically impossible to establish anything like the relationship between the peaks that you can see. Do you know what I mean? In a sense, it almost looks two-dimensional. You can't actually even tell sometimes which is in front of which. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of everything's been flattened, if you like, into your panorama view. And you can't actually tell any sort of relative distances at all. So anyway, you start on your walk towards um, the first peak. And maybe you get there by lunchtime. And you climb to the top of number one. And you realize, actually, that there are about three miles walk between one and two. And you've got to go all the way down again before you can go up again. And you sort of feel a bit frustrated by this, but, you know, you've got to get to number three, so that's what you do. Down and up. And likewise, when you get to number two, you realize that actually there, not only are there a few miles between two and three, there are a few other hills to climb as well. You know what I'm talking about. So you take a sort of side view, and you realize that actually there are gaps. And I think we need to think of Old Testament history, and in particular, how the prophets preached like this. And see that actually the gaps are only visible in retrospect. You only realize after the event what the gaps or where the gaps are. So if you take the first peak as that of um, the initial fulfillment of prophetic expectation in Israel's history. So it's, it's fulfillment in Israel's history. So for instance, Isaiah predicts the end of the exile. And he says that his servant Cyrus is going to come along and be the guy to do it. It's quite staggering. 
People get very excited about the servant songs in Isaiah, the servant language, who is my servant? And actually what they forget very often is that the identity of the servant has changed at various points. At one point, it's Israel themselves, who is my servant but the people, but they are deaf and blind, so they're no good. The next point, it's a pagan king who probably doesn't even realize he's God's servant, Cyrus. And the people come back from exile. But, you see, you get to the end of exile and the people coming back, and like those older people in Ezra, they realize that it's not quite what they were expecting, and they weep because they realize there's something more to come. We thought we got there, but actually there's more. And there's a gap of about 500 years. And we find the first coming of Jesus is, in fact, the beginning of fulfillment of the rest. The second peak And that inaugurates the gospel age and the new covenant Jeremiah had been looking forward to. But even then you find that actually not everything's in place. There are some pretty astonishing things that the prophet said, especially about the end of days and the day of judgment and all this sort of stuff. And you find that actually, well, we're not quite there yet. Now, I want to tell you a story. Turn to Isaiah 61. Please have Isaiah 61 open in front of you. Don't look at Luke. Keep your eye fixed on Isaiah 61. And I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What has Jesus done? So he stops in the middle of a sentence and it's almost as if Luke is deliberately making that point because he just says, at that point, folds up the scroll, sits down and then teaches them. It's a very dramatic moment. I mean, it must have been extraordinary to have been there, don't you think? You know, you don't often have, you know, our reading for the day is this. Okay, guys, that's me. Astonishing moment. But the point he is making is now is the year of the Lord's favor. It's not that there is no day of vengeance. That will come, but it's not yet. We are now in the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the opportunity to receive the gifts and the blessings of knowing God is here. The day will come when it will be too late. But we're not there yet. So do you see, if you look at Isaiah 61, you think perfectly reasonably that it is like a a mountain range, two-dimensional. You have no way of knowing where one begins and one ends. It just looks as though it's all going to happen at the same time. But actually, if you think about it, you know, a year and a day, well, I suppose they they might be metaphorical. But you would never in a million years guess that they're completely separated by, well, already 2,000 years, perhaps another 2,000 years. Do you see the point? Isaiah, I guess, didn't realize that. Many disciples didn't realize that. That's why sometimes, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Do you remember that at the beginning of Acts? Is this the time? Well, no, not yet. And they haven't fully understood. Do you see the point? So it looks like this mountain range in the distance. You can't tell apart the different events. It's only in retrospect that you say, ah, okay. This bit in Isaiah 61 refers to Jesus' first coming. 
This bit refers to his second coming. This is really quite crucial, and I think it just opens up a lot of what's going on in the prophets. And sometimes what you will find is that all three peaks are represented in the same paragraph. And sometimes you find that something looks as though it's one, but actually it could be two at the same time. And we will see this with the return from exile. It's just a partial fulfillment of something that will be completely fulfilled later. Right. At last we come to Jesus. What I think you will find is that the answer is Jesus. He is God's people. He is God's place. He is God's rule. And much else besides. He is the personification of the kingdom. What was the first thing that Jesus said as he hit Galilee with his preaching ministry? And you hardly need to remind, be reminded, I expect. It's so familiar. Mark 1, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom. Ah, it's interesting. Why is the kingdom of God near? Because the king is here. You can't have a kingdom without a king. The Messiah, the anointed one, the king. When Jesus said near the start of the Sermon on the Mount, don't think I come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He, felt, he meant um, fulfillment far more than simply fulfilling individual acts anticipated by the prophets. That's one of the mistakes I think we make. If you look for individual prophecies of the Messiah, there are very few in the prophets. You will miss the riches and treasures of the Bible if you just look for those. It's actually about the whole sweep of everything, heading like a tidal wave to this amazing climax when Jesus, the personification of God's kingdom on earth, stands before you and says, repent and believe the good news. And boy, is it good. Let's take some of the sort of aspects of this and see how they work through. He says, I will dwell among you. Remember the Garden of Eden? Remember the intimacy and the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God? He was seen wandering around the garden and they had access to him, but the fall and sin ruined it. The temple had provided a stopgap solution, God amongst his people, but access was extremely limited. Notice what happens when Jesus pitches up. John chapter 1. It begins in a rather cryptic way, John's Gospel, don't you think? In the beginning was the Word. You almost have to say it like Richard Burton or something, don't you? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what does a Word do? They tell you something? What do they tell? Where do they come from? Where do they start? So basically, there's something going on up here, usually, Something starts here and comes out here. They reveal. The word of God reveals God, speaks of God. But this is more. This word is God. How do we know? Well, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Then verse 18. No one's ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Do you see, the invisible God is now made visible in Jesus. Because the Word became flesh. And we've seen the glory of God. The glory which in the old covenant could not be seen for fear of death. It was a barrier. 
Remember Mount Sinai. God's holiness meant that he was absolutely unapproachable. He was dangerous. I mean, do you ever think of your God being a dangerous God? But the New Testament proclaims, no, God became flesh. Didn't just sort of wear the clothings of a body. He actually became a human being without losing his divinity. Not half and half, but 100% of both. Fully God and fully man. The mystery is that he's 100% of both. You remember Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space? He was obviously a trophy of the Soviet system, beating the Americans into space and how marvelous it was, but also a trophy of atheism. And so there were a few sort of cued journalists at the press conference when he came back to Earth, and, you know, he was asked, Have you, did you see God? <laughs> no. Stupid question. But actually, the answer should have been, no, but I would have done if I'd lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. I just lived in the wrong place at the wrong time. Have you seen God? No, I haven't. But that's just an accident of birth. God got his feet dirty, muddy, in the banks of the Jordan. He wept. He got hungry. He starved. He got exhausted. He needed a sleep. God, Yahweh, the Creator. One of the most marvelous things about John 1 is that actually, in some ways, it's a commentary on Exodus. Because Exodus, the book of Exodus, is all about God's glory coming to be with his people. And, and the climax of Exodus is chapter 40 when the glory comes down into the tabernacle. It's very difficult to know exactly what the glory means, but it's about God being with his people. The fascinating thing is that Exodus faces but never can resolve a major tension between the fact that God is transcendent, way beyond us, and imminent, down on our level. And I think this, uh, the, the example of this is in Exodus 33. Whereas at one point in that chapter, you have Moses talking with God face to face as a man talks with a man. In the same chapter, it goes on to say, you know, Moses wants to see his glory. and He says, no, you can't do that and live. Uh, You hide behind this rock because it is not possible for a man to see the glory of God and face to face and live. Contradiction? No. Tension. That is only resolved when it comes to the incarnation. And I think John 1, in some ways, is a commentary on that. And it's saying, at last, we've got the holding of the two together. The transcendence of God and the imminence of God together. And we've seen his glory. Us, fishermen, peasants from from Galilee, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've ate with him. The invisible God made visible. I wonder if you've wondered about the different titles Jesus has given. The son of David. Find that in Luke and Mark and places. Well, he's a descendant of David, and that really matters, doesn't it? You see, the genealogies in the Bible are very, very significant and important. If you get them in your quiet time, don't scoot through them and think, oh, dear, not another genealogy. Actually, they were gold dust for those looking for the serpent crusher who would be on the throne of David. Because you're looking through, is this the one? Or, okay, he's got the right parenthood. Could this be the one? It's interesting, there are no genealogies in the Bible after Matthew and Luke's in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. There are no more genealogies, don't need them anymore. Because the one that they've been building up to has been born. The son of David. Could this be the one who Isaiah expected as a son of David who would be called the mighty God, the everlasting father? That messes around with your Trinitarian theology, doesn't it? Here is a kid, an infant, held in the arms, sprawling, puking, mewing, whatever completely helpless and dependent on Joseph and Mary. The mighty God, the everlasting Father. Get your head around that. Or the Son of Man. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. At one level, the Hebrew phrase simply means bloke, human being. 
Ezekiel is called the son of man. Do you remember when he's told to prophesy to the bones? And God says, son of man, prophesy. And that's because it's God saying, bloke, do this. This means a guy, a man, a human being. Nothing special. And you wonder, why does Jesus call himself bloke? He's not just any old bloke, is it? Do you remember Daniel 7? He had a very strange dream. He saw one like a son of man, in other words, a bloke, approach the ancient of days. Not only approach, but more scarily, given all authority, glory, and sovereign power over all the peoples of the earth. Just think about that. Think about modern democracies and political systems. One of their main objectives, isn't it, is to prevent absolute power falling into the hands of one person. And here you have a vision of the creator God giving all his power over the universe to one bloke. It gave Daniel nightmares. He couldn't sleep after this vision. He was terrified by it, not comforted. It's all there in Daniel 7. It was terrifying. And anyone who's lived under a dictatorship will know what that means. It is absolute power in the hands of a person. And there's is only a comfort when you realize what type of person he is. Absolute power in the safest possible hands. And when you find Jesus talking about being the Son of Man, it's very often in terms of the Son of Man coming to reign on clouds. He uses it in the context of that sort of Daniel expectation, do you see? There you have it hinted at again, fully man, fully God. But here's the clincher. In John's Gospel, you have the seven I am's. It's not a type of cat food. It is of supreme theological significance. You remember the I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth and the life, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, all these things. Now, again, nothing strange about that. They're just claims. Except for the fact that in Greek, the expression is a clumsy one. Ego eimi. I, I am. Amy by itself just means I am. Like in Latin, sum, I am. It's obviously making a point, isn't it? I, ego, Amy, I am. And it's almost as if I am becomes a title in itself. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees. And they challenge him with the authority of Abraham, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. By the way, the Pharisees, we just assume that they're the bad guys always, and they're a bunch of hypocrites, and we can ignore them. We can't ignore them. They were pretty impressive people in their time. They were hugely respected, and they knew their Bibles back to front. In many ways, they were the evangelicals of their day. And they wanted to make sure that what God had said in the past still had weight. That's a perfectly right thing to do. It's just that they got it completely wrong. And they try to catch Jesus out. So he tells them this startling truth. I tell you the truth, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. Grammatically, as well as philosophically, that sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Now the Pharisees have got the point, according to John, haven't they? They've seen what he's saying. For the Greek translation of Yahweh... The name given at the burning bush is Ego Amy. I am. Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh, God's king. His Messiah is here. But what about his kingdom? What about this people? What about the place that they're going to live in? What about the law, the rule of God? Where do we see all these? Well, if Jesus is the personification of the kingdom, we see that he some personifies all the others as well. You can look at some of these verses for yourself. But he's the new Adam. Adam the first made a bit of a mess of things. Adam the second got it right. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 
make a point of that. For those still in Adam, in other words, all humanity, without Christ there is death. For those in Christ there is life. Without Christ you're still outside the garden, barred from the tree of life. In Christ there is access and life. He is the serpent crusher. Romans 16 applies the principle in a slightly different way, but the implication is the clear one. He is the serpent crusher, the one to reverse the effects of the fall. He is the new Abraham. In Luke, we've seen that story in John of him saying one greater than Abraham. But you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is actually a Jewish name turned into a sort of Greek, made sort of Greekified, but originally, you know, it was a, a Jewish name. And Zacchaeus presumably is Jewish, but he's a, a traitor, he's a collaborator, he's a tax collector of the Romans, and he was obviously quite a dodgy guy. Do you remember what happened, what Jesus said? You know, he climbs up his tree so that he can see, and we all know the story, and it's lovely. But when Jesus says at the end of that little encounter in Luke, he says, um, I'm coming to supper with you tonight. Oh, all right. And as a result, he says, today, this man has become a son of Abraham. Even to this day, if someone becomes a Jew from a Gentile background, they are given the name Bar Avraham, Bar Avraham, the son of Abraham. What Jesus is saying, to become a son of Abraham, you've got to come through me, even if you're Jewish. He is the true Israel. That's represented by his 40 days in the desert, being tempted in correlation to the 40 years in the wilderness. Israel failed, the new Israel got it right. Refused to bow down to any other god. Do you remember that really weird bit, and some people get very troubled by this, in Matthew you have that weird use of Hosea, when Jesus is still a child, and Hosea says, out of Egypt I've called my son. You know, I've seen commentators think that Matthew's completely lost it at this point. They think he's just thick. I'm prepared to give Matthew the benefit of the doubt over a commentator. And um, basically, uh, he quotes from Hosea 11. And when you look up that passage in Hosea 11, it's clearly talking about one thing only. It's talking about the Exodus, way back, centuries before Hosea. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Israel was God's firstborn son, as he described it, and he called them out of Egypt. That's got nothing to do with the Messiah. It's about an historical detail. And yet Matthew uses that as a foreshadowing, an archetype of what Jesus will be, because he is the personification of Israel. Not because it was a prophecy, but because it was a foreshadowing. It was a type. Do you see what I mean? It's saying, no, That was Israel, but this is the true Israel. This is the one to whom it's all been pointing. Likewise, he's the true representative. John the Baptist looks up and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He can truly represent humanity because he is part of humanity. He's a human being. He knows what it's like. The book of Hebrews goes to great pains to making that point. God's place. Remember what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. Now, something strange has happened to the idea of kingdom, hasn't it? Yes, kingdom is God's idea, but now, suddenly, it doesn't seem to be tied to geographical boundaries. It's actually more to do with who is your king than where you live. And the subversion of the old covenant places continues, because, you see, Jesus says in Matthew 12, one greater than the temple is here. And of course he's greater than the temple. What was the temple? Well, the temple was where you went to meet God, but you had to go through various paraphernalia and rigmaroles and sacrifices and all kinds of things. With Jesus, you just have to walk up to him. It's not quite the same, is it? Definitely more access. Remember those words from John 1? 
The word became flesh and made his dwelling. Well, the interesting thing is, the literal Greek meaning of that is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what it literally means. He tabernacled. Where do you meet God? You don't go into a building anymore. You go meet this bloke. This is even weirder. What happened in the temple? Well, you have all the sacrificial system and rigmarole and everything to sort of get you there. Well, in Jesus, we not only have the great high priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. If you're in a fellowship group, we've been seeing this in Hebrews this term. He doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself because he's sinless. But the most staggering thing of all is that not only is he the great high priest, he is also the sacrifice himself. Have a look at these verses from Peter. There's a need, all are due to face judgment. But there's a means to being rescued from that, provided by the very one who judges. And we're redeemed by the blood, one death in place of another, the blood of Christ. The result is not so that we go around then free to do whatever we want, because that's actually the slavery of sin, isn't it? That's precisely what we're being rescued from. No, we're now free to be a new nation called out of darkness into his marvelous light to live for him. Once we were not a nation, but now we are. Once we were slaves, but now we are a holy nation of priests. Priests in that every one of us has access to God. Do you see Peter is deliberately using Old Testament language and imagery and the template, if you like, of the Passover and the blood that is shed to bring peace, forgiveness, access, and a community. I mean, it's thrilling to look around this room and just to see our diversity. Without Christ, we would have precious little in common, apart from perhaps that we all live in London at the same time. But there are quite a few million people who live in London, and there's a lot of people who have very little in common with each other at all, isn't it? That's one of our problems, actually, as a society. We just don't know how to live together. And yet God has brought together a new nation that wasn't one before, that transcends the boundaries geographically and politically of every nation on earth. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Because we've been rescued by the blood of Jesus. That's not just jargon. That's not just a phrase. You know, there's sometimes people, you know, who talk about the blood. And a lot of the time people haven't a clue what you're talking about. I don't think it's useful language all the time. But we do need to understand what it means. One death in place of another. Will you trust God for that? Seems pretty odd. But then painting blood on a doorpost is pretty odd. But will you take God's word for it as being the means to being saved? Now, that just gives you a tiny glimpse of how Jesus is the centerpiece of everything in Scripture. Not because the Exodus stories, you know, are prophetic in one several. They don't say, okay, look, guys, this is just a picture. The real thing is coming. No, these were events that happened, and God used them, but they are a type. In other words, they say, this is the way that God's going to do it, except it's on an even grander, greater scale. They're just shadows, but now the reality is here. But you cannot understand the reality without seeing the shadows before him. This is why we need them. God's rule, well, how does God express his rule? But by speaking. The word, well, that's what Jesus is. The new covenant. Jeremiah pointed to a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. My blood will be shed as the means to this new covenant coming into being where the law will be written Not on tablets, but on hearts. How? As a result of one death in place of another. So, yes, the answer to all your questions is Jesus. And what is the response? John chapter 9, the man born blind who now sees. The healed man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
We're going to think more in the final session what a life of worship means, but it doesn't mean that he just suddenly got out his rainbow strap guitar and starts singing Matt Redman songs. Much that I love Matt Redman songs and I like singing. You only worship what is worth worshipping. You give him his due worth. And if it's the God of the universe, he is worth everything because of who he is, but also because of what he's given. He's given everything. What more could he have given than his son? Nothing. A Christian is someone who loves Jesus, can't spend enough time with him, who thinks the world of him because he's given us the world. I hope that the result of today, you will go away with a greater passion for him, not just with a booklet full of scribbles and a head full of ideas. If that is the case, then I've completely failed. He is it. Of course, the story's not over because he hasn't finished his work, but don't miss this. He's it. You never graduate from him. You never know enough about him. You never think, oh, well, I've done him. Now, what, now what's next? You know, some people seem to talk about the Holy Spirit a bit like that. Oh, well, you've we done Jesus. Now, now, what's all this Holy Spirit stuff? Well, we'll talk about him in a moment. But the Holy Spirit loves to give glory to the Son. The Holy Spirit is absolutely loving every moment of this because we're giving glory to the Son. That is what gives him deepest joy to see the Son glorified because of all that he is and all that he has done. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we proclaim him. We proclaim the kingdom has come because the king is here and he's on his throne. He died, he rose, he ascended, he sat down. And our job now is to tell everybody about it. But the weird thing is we've had 2,000 years since and that's the same amount of time as between Abraham and Jesus. So in a sense, we've only covered half of it today. Well, after the break, we're going to cover eternity as well. That's going to be fun. We are now living in the last days. Remember the beginning of Hebrews? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at times and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. There is a contrast. There is a but there. Before he spoke in all kinds of ways, but now there is nothing you can add to Jesus. Because he is the word. He is the exact representation of God. Don't think you graduate from him. You can't. There isn't more to God than you find in him. Which is why Jesus can say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What? The way to get our head around what these last days are is to see it like this. The Old Testament, the prophets would see two ages, the old age and the new age. And they would look forward to the day of the Lord. Remember, that's a repeated phrase. The day of the Lord will come. And then everything's going to slot into place. Well, just like our mountain range, it's not quite as simple as that. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you realize that there are two realities, two days, in fact. And the new age breaks into our age and starts it early, if you like. And the old age carries on for a bit in parallel. Do you see the point? And basically the period in between the two days of Jesus' first coming and his second coming is what we call the last days. So far they've been going on for 2,000 years. By the way, it's not to do with just the few years before the second coming. It's the whole period. We are living in the same period as Paul did. Okay, so the signs of the end of the age are going on the whole time at one level. We are living in the last days. And you see, as a result, there is a tension Because we got some of the things that characterize the new age starting, while at the same time, some of the things that characterize the old age continuing. So as Christians, we have God's spirit, and yet we still sin. We have the church, God's multiracial, multidimensional, incredibly diverse global community. But boy, does it make a hash of things sometimes. 
It's the tension of the now and the not yet. Yes, we've got some of it now, but we don't have it all later. And to understand a bit more, I'm going to finish this bit now. I'll complete the last bits of this talk after our break. So much in terms of getting our heads around Christian experience today and the frustrations and the agonies of being a Christian, as well as the joys and the wonders, are perfectly explained by this tension. 